0: Do you have trouble sleeping? Then Sleepscape could be your answer. A world first sleep aid podcast recorded live in some of Australia's most iconic places. I invite you to sleep under the star. It's like you're actually there. Choose from over ten locations. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Sleepscape. Choose where you sleep tonight.
1: A Podshape production.
0: It was a sunny Saturday in Adelaide on the 25th of August 1973. It was getting close to footy finals time and Les and Kathy Ratcliffe and their young son David and daughter Joanne were excited to watch their beloved Norwood on the red legs club. Over,
2: will put it forward from centre wing towards centre half forward. Hobbie in the front spot, couldn't pull it down. Knocked on intelligently by Surrall. Full mark for that one over the Grimwood. He's slow, the little over, but gets his boot in towards the goal just in time to squeeze through.
0: On the other side of town, four-year-old Kirsty Gordon was not as excited about a football game, but she was excited about being with her nan for the day, who was a Norwood fan and was planning to take her granddaughter to her fortnightly ritual at Adelaide Oval. The day started like any other, but by the time the sun went down, two families' lives would change forever.
1: Well, of
2: all the baffling crimes that have been committed in this city, few are more heartbreaking than the disappearance of
3: Kirsty Gordon and Gian Ratcliffe.
2: We're particularly looking for uh, information concerning the happenings at the Adelaide Oval during the last quarter of the game.
0: This is Little Lost Girls. Episode 3, Bear the unlikely hero. So far we've heard that Joanne Ratcliffe and Kirsty Gordon went missing or were more likely abducted from the Adelaide Oval on August 25, 1973. The family have spent years searching for answers, and although there were some sightings of the girls both leaving the Oval and around the area of the Oval on the day, police have never arrested or charged anyone with their abduction. No bodies have ever been found, and what happened to these two innocent girls has remained a mystery for over 47 years. We've shared with you the detail of one suspect, a pedophile, who was charged with the murder of two children in Queensland, but was never convicted, and escaped any punishment because the courts deemed him unfit to stand trial because of dementia. Arthur Brown, by the records, died an innocent man, although most people believed he was far from innocent. Head back to the first few episodes to hear the story unfold. Right now, let's return to Susie's recount of the police actions soon after her sister Joanne and young friend Kirsty disappeared. There was a reward offered for your sister and for Kirsty, it started out at $200,000.
3: Yep. well, it actually started out just after the girls disappeared. It started out at $5,000. That's what the government uh, put up. Um, Back in the 70s, $5,000 was a lot of money, I suppose. Hmm. The public didn't think that was enough. Uh, There was a heap of of guys, they... um, they donated part of their wage to uh, the reward. There was also workers from Tip Top Bakery, where my dad worked, um, they donated part of their wage and Tip Top Bakery itself donated $1,000. So it ended up being a total of $10,000 around that time, which as I said, in the seventies, it was quite a lot of money. Over the years, the, uh, the reward was increased to $200,000 Um, for information leading to the location of the girls or to the apprehension and conviction um, of the abductor. In 2013, uh, I read on a Facebook post that um, there was a $500,000 reward offered for information into the murder of a known drug dealer in South Australia. And got me quite upset because I felt that they valued uh, a drug dealer as being more important than, you know, the life of our two girls. And then also sort of looked across at some of the other rewards being offered and thought, well, $100,000 for the Beaumont children. And that's, that's pocket change mm. to some people. I spoke with uh, the detective inspector in South Australia and um, basically pushed for an increase in the reward. You know, I, I hoped even if it was just going to be like, you know, $500,000 equal to that of what they were issuing for the information for the drug dealer. After the detective inspector and the victims of crime officer from South Australia come over and spoke with me at my home in Wangaratta, uh, we had quite a lengthy, quite volatile conversation on my part um, they agreed that yes, something needed to be done. There needed to be more publicity around not just the girls' cases, but but to all cases, for them to realize that it's not just another file. It's just not not just another case number. Uh, that they bring up on their computer or pull out, pull out of the cardboard box on the odd occasion. Uh, there needs to be more dedication to the the girls' case. There needs to be more investigations. There needs to be more publicity. Uh, and there certainly needs to be a larger reward. In February two thousand and fourteen, uh, they invited me over to South Australia, uh, to announce uh an increase in the reward. They didn't tell me exactly what was going on until that night before the announcement, and um, so it was a, a hell of a shock to me when they told me that the reward was going to be increased to a million dollars, not just for Joanne and Kirsty, but for the Beaumont children, Michaela Cadell, Marilyn Quallman, Juan Morgan. In total, um, it was 18 kids under the age of 18, Um, or for 13 cases, basically. Wow. We're going to be increased to a million dollars.
0: I would like to invite uh, Susie Radcliffe uh, to say a little about what the offer of this set of rewards means to her family and other families like her. Susie, if you could come forward. Thank you.
1: Um, firstly, I'd like to, to thank everyone um, that's been involved in this. This is um It's a, a major significant change for for my family and and for other families that have lost their children. Um, if this helps the vital clue to bringing our girls home or you know, other children, then that's all that matters. Um, living day by day, not knowing where our children are is, it's incomprehensible it's a pain no one should ever have to endure my family have missed out on seeing my my sister grow up go to school, all the different highs and lows of her life, getting married and having children of her own Um, my parents had to lose a child that you know, you never believe that you're going to, to lose a child. You always believe your children are going to bury you. And to lose a child to ill health, it's it's something that, you know, it's, it's painful, but you can at least bury them and you can grieve for them properly. But not having a body to bury and to actually grieve for her properly.
0: That's right. take your time.
1: I'm sorry. This reward could mean the answers that my family and so many other families have been waiting for for so long. And I just appeal to those out there that may have those answers, please find it within your heart to ring Crime Stoppers and put an end to our pain.
2: Thank you, Susan.
0: I'm guessing that once this million dollars was offered, this would have brought about a whole bunch of calls, as you said, 150-odd. Yeah. But equally, people coming out of the woodwork, like private investigators, starting to Mm -hmm. think, well, if there's a million dollars on this, suddenly, if we can find the answer, there's a pretty large payday coming for us. Mm -hmm. Is that where the information from Robert Cameron, the private investigator, started?
3: No, no. Um Robert or Bear, um as he's affectionately known as. Uh, he started this investigation long before the rewards were even announced. Um both him and a number of his colleagues uh had been investigating the girl's case um for at least 4 or 5 years previous.
0: Robert Cameron, or Bear as he's known, is a former bikey who now owns a tattoo parlour in Adelaide. He's also a private investigator who came to learn about the Adelaide Oval Abductions through a person known to him long before any rewards were offered and long before he met Susie or any members of the Ratcliffe family. Bear is, as you would expect, a heavily tattooed larger man who has a beard, often wears a bucket hat and rides a Harley. He sounds scary, but as you hear Susie describe him and how he's helped the family, you can tell he really cares.
3: I didn't know this guy from a bar of soap Um, or any of the guys, for that matter. Um, I'd never met them before. I'd never spoken to them before. And then, yeah, out of the blue, um, he was like a... You know an angel on horseback just come in and um you know he just he's made such an impact on our family um I a few years ago now I um I surprised him and I surprised mum um Bear uh, was living in in Adelaide he used to own a, a tattoo shop there um we uh I took Mum around there. She had no idea where we were going, and uh, it wasn't until we were walking through the door I told her what we were doing. And um, Bear come into the room, and I'd already met him on a previous occasion. Mm-hmm. So, um, but uh, yeah, he walked into the room and he just he looked at Mum and he started crying straight away. You know, this big massive hulk of a man. He's I've he's seen like pictures, a bear.
0: Yeah, yeah. I've seen. I've yeah. seen videos.
3: <laughs> Um, and uh, yeah he just him and mum just they wrapped each other up in this massive hug and (laughs) I mean it was for anyone watching uh, that didn't know the story they think it would be quite funny because my mum at that stage was about 38 kilos she was just this little toothpick of a woman Uh, and you could barely see her uh, because of bear uh, being so big but they they just they lingered in this massive hug for quite some time and um, They were both crying at Mum when they finally broke apart. Mum said to Bear, She goes, You have given me hope that I haven't felt in an incredibly long time. And to hear that, um, that broke me because, you know, it's been such a long time that Mum seriously thought that you know we may just be able to bring her home Hmm. Um, you know and Bear and his team have been incredible
0: When I spoke with Bear he was at home in Adelaide with his dogs, you'll hear them in the background occasionally through our chat we picked up after Bear tells me that he learned of a letter a sort of confession that was given to one of his mates who knew a man called Mark Kevin Marshall who was in jail for various crimes and was a known paedophile. Bear's mate met him in a cafe in Adelaide and handed him the confession from Mark Marshall.
2: At a little cafe, and uh, which which is a uh, link to all of this as well. That's why he took me to that cafe, and uh, he, he handed me a statement from a fella called Mark Trevor Marshall, and who was in prison uh, for. Various, uh, pedophilia crimes, allegedly. Uh, I, I believe he is definitely a pedophile, and, but, uh, he, he was also a victim of this ring of pedophiles, so uh, he's grown into monkey see, monkey do. This guy's, fair enough, he's, he's a serial pest, but he's also been held in jail for, must be, getting into the teens now. It must be 13, 14 years that I know he's been in jail for. And every time a charge comes up to court, things get dropped, and then he's looking like he's going to get released, and then they just bring up another charge, and they keep him in prison, and they've just... They don't want him released, which is fair enough. He shouldn't be in, the, in, in public, uh, in, in society, uh, as, as a normal civilian, because he's definitely got problems. He, he should probably be in a mental institution, to tell you the truth, rather than in prison.
0: Every time that he goes to get out, and the last time he went to get out, I read that actually the prison guards had searched his cell and found uh, pornographic material and names and addresses of young children.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, How do do you access pornographic? Especially if it's it's child porn, how do you access that while you're in prison?
0: And you believe that this is part of uh, a pedophilia ring that has been around in Adelaide for some time, is that right? Oh, decades
2: and decades,
0: mate. Mark Trevor Marshall claims to know what happened to Joanne and Kirsty. How did you find out about the claim? You you mentioned that you got... uh, information or a letter that Mark had written in jail.
2: Yeah, I got a statement that he'd made for the Mulligan Inquiry. And I've, I've actually got a copy of the Mulligan Inquiry and everything. And uh, and um, this statement was handed to the Mulligan Inquiry by, by, via Mark. And uh, because he was in a state ward, they didn't investigate it.
0: The Mulligan inquiry was an inquiry held in 2006 and 2007 and was investigating the abuse of children in state care. The inquiry which included 1,592 allegations of sexual abuse and the investigation of deaths of over 924 children in state care. Mark Marshall appeared in front of Commissioner Mulligan to detail what happened to him. As part of that, there were questions around his confession letter that Bear had seen from his mate, the cafe. Oh
2: yeah, I, I, I read them from three or four different points of view, like as a critic, as a skeptic, as a uh, uh, somebody that may uh, try to put myself in his shoes, sort of thing, to think of what what he was talking about and everything. And, and a lot of it does sound like rambling, but a lot of it makes sense. Uh, we, we pulled the statement apart, me and a couple of friends of mine. We sat there and we pulled the statement apart and took out all the names and everything. And there's 19 missing children involved in that statement.
0: And all of those children are named in that statement? They are
2: named in that
0: statement. And so he would have to know... Intrinsic details of their disappearances because as we get into your story, he gave you some information or was certainly written in that statement that you then went and followed up on and were able to, I guess, prove some of the stuff that he had written in particular about Joanne and Kirsty in his statement. What was the what was the most shocking thing that you read in his statement, Bear?
2: Oh, the most shocking thing would probably be just the general everyday treatment of this this child when he was a child. Now he was a child at at the point of all of this of all of this taking place. You know what I mean? He was it was a very young child, and uh, so so you can understand some of the ramblings. Like it, it had. You'd be getting memory flashbacks and this back and this, that and the next thing. And this is what I, I presume would have happened with him. And um, he, he was molested on a daily basis uh, along with numerous other children.
0: The opening of the transcript between Mark Marshall and the commissioner is quite telling and also gives further insight into what shaped Mark Marshall as a child. The following is graphic in nature and is not intended to shock or disturb, but to give you some background on the allegations made by Mark, there is a trigger warning here around child abuse and items of a sexual nature. On March 16, 2007, Mark told the commissioner that the start of his abuse began when he was held at knife point by his dad from the daytime until the evening because he told his teachers at school about some stuff that was happening at home. They were trying to ask him questions, but his dad wouldn't let Mark answer them. The commissioner then goes on to ask Mark if his dad did things to him. And Mark answered with a yes. He then stated it started a long time ago from when he was a baby until he went to jail for the first time, which he thought was about 18 or 19. He then also claims about what his dad did to him and his brothers and other children. Without trying to make Mark Marshall a victim in this, he certainly was a victim of some terrible abuse at a very young age. Yeah,
2: he definitely was, without a doubt.
0: And it wasn't just Mark's dad that was doing this sort of stuff to him. It was also his granddad, or Popper, yep. as he calls him. And uh, Popper is actually Mark's dad's father, is that right? Stanley Hart. Yes. That's Popper, as Mark would Who was a known pedophile. Mark's statement says that this pedophilia that has happened to him as a young child is almost passed down through generations.
2: Yeah if this is part of your life every single day, well, you're going to think it's normal, aren't you?
0: There is one thing that he wrote in the statement, which I will read because um, we're going to refer to it later in the podcast. And I think you need to know what it means so that you understand, because he refers to this particular term a lot throughout his statement in the in the ramblings that I've seen, and also then the, the, the statement he made to the commissioner in 2007. He said that... There was a practice that he refers to as tunnelling. The commissioner at the time asked what tunnelling was because he didn't understand. And it was a process of using an implement, normally a knitting needle, to penetrate the children. And then um, after that, they would then use a beer bottle um, to do the same uh, to, to the boys and to other people that had been at the house. There was also a room in that house that um, that Mark talks a fair bit about. Can you tell me about that room that he that he refers to? I think it was called the sexy room
2: yeah I, uh, I, I don't know which room would have actually been the sexy room. It was probably the room that he that he calls Ricky's room, which is out the back um, it, it, uh, the house was just it, it was just an absolute mess and there was mattresses everywhere. There was uh, 11, 11 single bed mattresses in one room and all stacked on top of each other. And uh, yeah, he, he describes the place quite well in his little mud map that he drew up. We actually initially searched for for the, we went and bought maps and that and, and started searching for the town. We couldn't find um, the prop, the the town on a map, and then I went on to Google, and actually found the town. And as we moved down the, the street on the Google app, I saw the pine trees that he'd drawn on the map, and I, all the hair stood up on my neck, and I thought, oh my God, like it, it, this is it, this place does exist? And that that was the most horrifying thing of all. Like after I'd read the statement, I found out that the place actually existed. Me and a group of friends. We took three carloads of us because we were a little bit paranoid. So we took three carloads of us up there and uh, went and filmed the place and went and checked it all out. And, and uh, yeah, it was it, it was pretty horrifying. But uh, we walked in and we we found various bits of evidence and stuff laying around. Like we found a hat that fits the description of the hat. Of the guy I was wearing when he took the kids. There was a, a doctor's book in a cupboard in the lounge room, and when I, I it was a it was a prescription properties guide, so, and it kind of tells you how to use prescription drugs properly and what what they're used for and rah rah rah. And when, when we opened it, the the book opened to a page that you know how a book's been opened frequently to a certain page, well, it, it just opened to a page where it tells you how to use particular drugs to put somebody in a hypnotic trance. The hat was in a back room, and I'd say that was that was the, the sexing room, I'd say.
0: Bear, you're a pretty hard man. I, I'm imagining, uh, without going into detail, as part of a motorcycle gang, you would have seen some pretty heavy shit. Um, oh, yeah, kind of. Yeah, um, did this shock...
2: Punch-ons and stuff. Yeah. yeah,
0: and I'm guessing it was through the 80s and 90s, right? So, you know, back in the days where there were no laws against you hanging out with each other, so you know that that was that was the norm. How did what you saw in that house compare to, to what you've seen in in your previous life?
2: Oh, uh, well, I was I was shocked, and and everybody. Uh, because I had to share what I was doing with my club, because we're not allowed to—we weren't allowed to speak to police and stuff like that. So I had to get permission from my club to do it. Uh, I was pretty horrified, and so were most of the fellas. Right? And because it was to do with children, uh, they gave me permission to go on with it. Have you been to jail before? Yeah, I've been to jail.
0: What happens to a prisoner that is in jail that's committed some of the acts that Mark
2: Marshall has done and his dad and his pop? They're, they're usually protected. They're usually put in protective custody. and um, But if they're in the general population, even in protective custody, they, they get beatings and, and jugs of boiling water thrown on them and all sorts of stuff. Uh, but Fair enough, I I believe. There there probably should be a death penalty for people like that.
0: The detail in the confession that Mark Marshall wrote and was passed on to Bear and then to Susie is rambling at best. It's long and difficult to read, not just because of the graphic nature, but it sometimes goes off in tangents and is hard to follow. It's handwritten and badly spelt. But there is a meticulousness to this statement. Each page has an index with reference points, so you can sort of follow along. He's highlighted some of the worst things you can imagine happening to a child, and worse still, by a child's parents and grandparents. His letter was actually given to me by Susie Ratcliffe, and when we talked about it, Susie said it took a good six months for her to read. Susie, it wasn't about the disjointedness. It was that this document contained lots of references to her sister Joanne and some of the vile things that Mark Marshall alleges were done to her.
3: His statement, uh, which I have a a copy of, uh, it's quite mind-boggling. And it's, it's very confronting with the details that he goes... Uh, it does explain he goes into quite a lot of detail about how the girls were kidnapped um, what his grandfather did to them you know, um, over the ensuring days and then how they ended up in the barrels which were ultimately dumped uh, at the Burkina Dam uh, and with all of these details that he's given to in in this statement Bear and his crew have investigated uh, they located the barrels pretty much exactly where Mark Trevor Marshall said they were going to be they also located other uh, pieces of evidence uh, that Mark Trevor Marshall has given in his statement uh, out at Stanley Hart's home What was uh, which is in Yatna South Australia
0: what was Mark Trevor Marshall's um, reasons for doing this
3: statement? Do you know? I don't think it was out of guilt. I think maybe it's more of a an attention seeking thing. Um, he, you've got to understand, he's he's a very twisted, sick individual, from what I've I've read, what I've heard. Um, I've also had. Contact from his ex-girlfriend, uh, and she's told me a number of things about him. Uh, he's yeah, he's he's a very
0: troubled person. In the next episode of Little Girls Lost,
2: when we opened the barrels, they stunk, and all the the remaining liquid. Had out of them and then uh, we took the, the solids and got them tested. Well Hart was a known pedophile in Adelaide and he was put on that property by government. He was sent out to there to get him away from Adelaide because he was molesting too many children. If, you, if you've if you got a, uh, a pedophile ring that's catering for the, the high, high end of society, you'd probably want to protect that. Yeah.
0: Mark Marshall, you believe you know his real identity?
2: Well, There's a, a very strong possibility because he fits the same age group. He, he, he's about he's around the same age, and I believe that uh, he, he may possibly be um, Grant Beaumont.
3: It was such a shock, and I just I couldn't I couldn't grasp grasp. it. I thought, oh, like, you know, someone's playing some you know stupid joke. This is ridiculous. Um, and it just at that point, I just thought, you know, well, I'm I'm it. It just it forced me to think that, you know, we've we've fought so hard for so long, and everything that I've been fighting for is it hasn't been worth it.
0: over 38,000 long long-term missing person cases in australia and the story you've just heard is one of them we want to continue to help bring these emotional stories of ambiguous loss to you so we can spread the word and hopefully get some closure for the families for as little as the price of a coffee a month you can help support us to keep creating this content just head to our patreon page the link is in the show notes